I, I love the Jonathans. We're going to meet them uh, every weekend uh, at RCC over the next couple weeks in November. Uh, but but what, they said is, what they said is true. Um, ready or not, the holiday season is here. And so we thought it'd be appropriate to talk about uh, family in a series called Our House. And we'll be exploring different elements of the house and how they reflect our lives. And so today we're going to talk about the front door and what do healthy boundaries look like. Next weekend, we're going to talk about uh, the children's rooms and what does it look like to impact a child or student in the next generation. Uh, week three, parents will be getting something in, in your emails. We're going to talk about sex and intimacy, and uh, I'll let you know how we're going to navigate that, and you can decide as a parent if you want your child in here or not to, to, to hear that. And then week four, Thanksgiving weekend, we're going to talk about the dining room. Uh, what does it look like to enjoy life with friends and family? Friends that uh, aren't family, but we, we consider them family. And our scripture for this series, I encourage you to write it down or take a shot of the screen and memorize it as a family, is Proverbs 24, verses 3 through 4. And in Proverbs, the writer says, By wisdom a house is built. And through understanding, it is established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Uh, God is saying that it's not through knowledge. Anybody can read a book and and apply what they learn. But but he talks about wisdom. In Hebrew, the word for wisdom is Sophia. So if your name is Sophia, right, you have an awesome name. Uh, Just be careful not to tell your parents they have to listen to you because your name means wisdom, right? Uh, but wisdom it requires that we have a relationship with it, not that we open a manual of how to do family and, you know, we memorize principles and now we're good, but it's a relationship that we have with God's word, okay? And our big idea for the series is God's wisdom, God's understanding, and God's knowledge can help us build rare and beautiful relationships. Now, as we talk about the front door and the relationships in our lives, and if this was a big, small group, all right, it would be too big, uh, I would lead our small group with this icebreaker, this discussion question. How are your current relationships going, really? If you're watching online, how, how is your current relationships, how are your current relationships going, really? Right, the in-laws are coming, right? That crazy uncle that thinks it's okay to play Pentatonic Christmas album before Thanksgiving, He's coming too, right? So we, we often in our, in our Christian walk really don't know how to engage with people that cross our boundaries. We, we think we should love everybody, and, which is true, but sometimes that means we, we, we take that to mean uh, we just need to be passive-aggressive and let the other person get what they want for the small amount of time we're interacting with them, then we can go back, our, go back to our home, take a deep breath, okay, Thanksgiving is not for another year. But that's not what God's talking about. That's not what Scripture is talking about. So when we talk about front door, we're talking about who we allow access into our lives. And nobody, hopefully in this room, nobody would willingly leave for Thanksgiving or do Christmas shopping and uh, leave their front door unlocked. Uh, hopefully not. Uh, not many people in this room would willingly or knowingly leave uh, the back door unlocked, right? And, and the house completely uh, uh, dark at night. But how often do we not allow our boundaries to be known in our relationships? 
and we leave that front door ever so slightly cracked open, and we let that person get their way again. Or we, we use self-deprecating humor to put ourselves down so we can hurry up through this whatever transactional thing we got going on with the person that we don't know how to get along with. See, what I'm saying is we normally wouldn't knowingly leave the front door open in our lives, would we? And yet, I think we do it often in our relationships more than we are willing to admit. In the 80s and 90s and even before, back when you had to physically, remember this, remember this time back in my day? You had to physically be home to watch TV. This is before streaming happened. And the front door was a big piece into family matters, uh, into happy days, uh, into full house. And even in Seinfeld, right, you're thinking Kramer, right? Even if they're not uh, uh, welcomed in, or even if the family doesn't even know that they're coming over, they just barge in, and there they are, ready or not, now you have to deal <laughs> with that person in the room. Here's a montage of some of the best front door scenes. Two first-class tickets to Tinseltown. Oh, first-class, Fonz. I can't afford first-class. Of course you can. I got them from Yolanda down at the travel agency. One more date, you're going to Europe. <laughs> hey, hey, look alive. Uncle Jesse's here. Hey, Uncle Jesse! All right, hello. DJ, how you doing? That tooth come in yet? Nah. It's okay, one less to brush. <laughs> hey, Jesse. Man, I, I, miss, uh, I miss Full House, and I, I don't think TV ever ever got better after, after the 90s. But, but whether we want to admit it or not, we do leave the front door open in our lives. Uh, Alec Baldwin, I already had this uh, illustration already written before he got arrested this week, so I'm going with it, uh, interviewed Kim Kardashian. It gets better, right? And he was interviewing her about um, one of the most difficult moments in her life when she was uh, robbed and I think even held captive in Paris, France, when she was robbed. And he said, tell me what that moment was like for you. And she said, it was the worst moment of my life, but it was the most um, transformative moment in my life. And he said, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, up until that moment, uh, I thought basically life was a story about me. I was the main character and you're just living in it. I wanted all the money. I wanted all the beauty. I wanted all the fame. I wanted all the celebrity notoriety. Everything was a story about me, right? It sounds exhausting even saying it. I, I, I would get on social media and I would post photos and videos in real time. Uh, when I was on vacation, I would say, hey, having a great time with my sisters and, and Kanye. Oh, I so want to go there, but I'll just leave that at Kanye. Uh, and, but I didn't realize that when I did that, I just told the world that I'm not home. I'm completely vulnerable if someone wanted to take advantage of myself or my family. She said after uh, the French police interviewed the guys that robbed her, they told the French police, listen to this, they had been tracking her primarily through Instagram for two years, for two years. And they, they, they noticed where uh, how she moved, when she moved, why she moved. They paid attention to where she checked in on social media, what she was doing. And for them, they felt the best opportunity to go in and assault and attack and rob the Kardashians was when they were in Paris, France. 
Why do I say that? Nobody knowingly or willingly leaves the relational and digital front door open in their life. But we do it all the time. We do it all the time. And so I want to ask you a few front door questions about the idea of, of boundary. And, and just, you know, these are not, they'll be heavy questions, but they're, they're not meant to condemn you. They're just, they're just discussion starter questions that hopefully you can have with your spouse and family after service uh, over lunch. Here are some front door questions to consider. Do you continue to offer help even when it's not appreciated or acknowledged? Do you find yourself resenting the responsibilities you take on? Do you frequently ignore unacceptable behavior? Do you too often put your own needs and desires aside in order to help somebody else? Parents, moms, do you ever feel fearful that not doing something will cause a blow up, make the person leave you, or even result in violence, domestic violence? That's a classic question for codependency. Do you ever lie to cover up for someone else's mistakes? Right? Th these sobering questions remind us that we, we leave the front door open more than we probably want to admit, or even, honestly, more than we even realize. It's so beautiful what Paul encourages us with in 1 Corinthians 2, 15-16. Paul says, the person with the Spirit makes judgment. That's weird. Okay, here's what he's talking about. When a person follows Jesus, right, they have the Holy Spirit to lead them and guide them. So Paul is saying a Jesus follower has the Holy Spirit to walk with him, right? The, the Greek word for Holy Spirit is our English word for paralegal, someone who walks around, walks with us, giving us wise counsel, okay? So if you're a lawyer, attorney, no lawyer jokes, at least this morning, okay? Uh, so you have the Spirit to discern your life. And then he says, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgment. So a healthy Jesus follower, we all struggle with this. I struggle with this too, okay? A healthy Jesus follower has a spirit to lead and guide him or her, and they don't have to subject themselves to what other people think about them. Now, if you're in middle school and high school, you don't believe me, and I don't blame you. Because middle school and high school is tough. The teenage years are tough. But Paul says the beauty that we have as Christ followers is that we have his spirit. We don't have to face judgment. We don't have to listen to what other people think of us. It's negative, right? And then he says, who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. There's a level this is amazing. There's a level of spiritual maturity and emotional intelligence for every Christ follower where you're following Jesus and discerning life with the Holy Spirit so closely that Paul makes this outlandish statement. We seem to be in, into those, right? We just finished a series about how Jesus defines himself. Paul makes this outlandish statement that you can actually think like Jesus. That if you have healthy boundaries, good support, you're in a, you're in a small group. It's so important to be in a small group. It, it's not just something to add to your calendar. This is life-giving stuff. And we're going to launch new groups in February. Well, it's time to January. You're in a small group. 
personal Bible reading time, having God conversations with your spouse and your kids. Not, 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 not so much where you feel like you have to know everything, but you're, you're sitting at the dinner table asking questions, right? What'd you think about the sermon? I hated it. Great. Why, son? Well, I don't know, you know. Well, I loved it. Okay, great. Why? And also ha- having a time of personal prayer time. And, and also there's this, this it's, it's everything, guys. It's also like th- there's this moment where you decide church is not about me anymore. And I'm so thankful that someone welcomed me when I came to RCC for the first time. Now I want to serve. Like, there's, it's all of these elements that as a Christ follower continues to step into, and over the course of his or her life, they develop not just a sense of maturity. Anybody can get mature. Like You can read books, and talk, you, anybody can be mature. But to have spiritual depth and wisdom, to, to know how to have a relationship with Sophia, to know how to have a relationship with wisdom, the ability to do life well happens over the course of a Christian's lifetime that leads them to be able to think like Jesus. What, what, what a beautiful, like, what a beautiful gift. Like, if you thought your salvation started and ended at your baptism, you're wrong. Like, there are so many more gifts. It's like Christmas every day. There's so many more gifts for you to open and to explore. So let's talk about what, what's the difference between a life-giving and a life-stealing relationship. Hopefully, all right, aside from your spouse, womp womp, hopefully everybody has at least one life-giving relationship, okay? I love my wife. She's amazing, okay? And she's here, so I'm saying it. She's amazing. Listen to me. She's amazing. Uh, but before I met my wife, uh, I met Cody Douglas. I was a junior, sophomore, junior. I was an RA. He was a freshman in college, and we uh, liked the same food, the same sports, the same music. He was there when um, the stuff hit the fan in my life. My parents divorced, my dad's uh, substance abuse problems. I was there when his father was wrestling with some of the same things. He was there for me when my first fiance walked away. There's another story in and of itself. Um, I, I was there for him even, you know, as much as I can be, living in New Hampshire, and he lives in Missouri. This past week, his, his mom was, was very ill, and it suddenly passed away. I, I know with Cody that I can be completely me, and there are very few people that have 100% access into my life. That's healthy. That's good. We have over 300 people that come to this church on the weekends. I don't have time to give 300 people full access into my life but I do have time to give a small group full access in my life. And hopefully you have someone that is a life-giving relationship to you. But on the other side of that, unfortunately, there's life-stealing relationships. One of my favorite musicians, he's since passed away in the 90s, Rich Mullins, he wrote a song called Elijah. And there's a lyric that's always stuck with me because it's true. There are people who will be friendly, but they'll never be your friends. And it's really difficult, if we're just being honest, at least it is for me, it's really difficult sometimes to discern who gets full access, you know, half access, or just partial access into my life. And it's okay to discern and try to discern and seek the Lord. You have the Spirit. You don't have to fear judgment. You have the mind of Christ. You have a church that you can connect to, right? You have leaders and elders and small group leaders that you can confide in. Hopefully, hopefully, through those relationships, you can discern who gets access into my life. And man, I, I, I'll tell you what, with the level of negative self-talk 
and, and mental health that people struggle with, they don't think that they're lovable. They don't think that, you know, God loves me, so what? God loves everybody, big deal, right? And, and they think they're just an average Joe, and they sacrifice themselves on the altar of their front door just so they can just kind of sort of get through life. That's not how the Lord's wired us. That's not, that's not how the Lord meant for us to live. Let's talk about life-giving relationships. They're based on three things, grace and truth. We'll talk about the third thing in just a minute. Number one is that grace comes from God. Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. Not, so when we say faith, we're not saying like, oh, if I just you know, squeeze my eyes tight enough and my forehead, then I'll become a Christian. No, what Paul is saying, we're saved through faith because the object of our faith, and I never thought I would need grammar, the object of our faith is Jesus. So, so we believe, right, the Christian believes that Jesus went to the cross on our behalf, died the death that we should have died, rose again three days later, conquering sin and death on our behalf, things we could not do for ourselves. doesn't matter how self-made of a man or woman you are, you cannot do that for yourself. There's not an insurance policy big enough that you can get for your kids that that will guarantee where they end up in this next life, aside from what Paul is saying, the person and work of Jesus. By grace, Jesus saved us. This is not from ourselves, right? You can't buy an insurance policy to do this on your own. It's completely a gift from God. Now, this may sound a little weird, but hang with me. Every friendship, every relationship has to have a worldview. We need to think well, not, not, not just about life and death and those big existential questions, but we need to think about what's the basis of a friendship, right? And, and sometimes we think of church, well, that, that's just too, too simple. But man, relationships, whether depending on if they're healthy or not healthy, they can destroy us. What is the basis of every relationship? It's grace. That at the end of the day, God saved you. <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, he saw you in middle school, right? He saw you talk back to your mom and dad, right? Like, he saved you. And so the basis of every friendship and the basis of every marriage has to be on this fact that I am not just sinful, I am completely broken, that I need the grace of God, and that the only label that we should give other people is the fact that the label that they should wear on their forehead is that every person you interact with needs grace. They need grace. More than anything else, they need God's grace. Number two, grace doesn't just come from the Lord. It comes from other people. Peter knows this firsthand. We love Peter, right? Peter's the guy we just sit back and just give him about 30 minutes and he'll mess up and we'll, have, and we'll laugh at him, right? Pretty, pretty sadistic, I know. But, but Peter, P Peter was blown away when Jesus told Peter, hey, look, Peter, I know you love me. I know you're excited. I know you're my biggest cheerleader. You think emotionally. I, you know, you're all in or nothing. I love that, Peter, about you. But before I die, you're going to die me three times. <gasps> Not me. I go to church every Sunday. I give 90% of my money. I live off of 10%. I'm in a small group, uh, Sunday school class, Bible study, parking lot, greeter. I do it everything for you, Jesus, right? P Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. I, I would never do that, Lord. And when Jesus, a Jew, is on trial for what he said at night, which was a crime in of itself, Jews would never be on trial under night when the sun goes down. The religion will not allow that. P 
Peter finally denies, him, denies knowing Jesus to what scholars say would be the equivalent of a middle school girl at a campfire. Jesus was being tried over here. Peter was denying Jesus over there. Jesus was, was, was within an earshot of Peter's denial. And some scholars believe that Jesus was so close that he looked out so the window and locked eyes with Peter. Don't you love those moments? When you're in the right, <laughs> boom, right? I'm, I'm going to drop the hammer. What does Jesus do? He looks at Peter's sinfulness. He looks at Peter's brokenness. And he doesn't handle the relationship through human knowledge, but through godly wisdom. We know this because later in Peter's writings, in 1 Peter 4.10, Peter says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Uh, this holiday season, or maybe every day of your life, you will have moments where you are in the right, and the textbook answer says, drop the hammer. But what good would, would it do? What, what good is it if we just say, grace is for me, but not for the people in my life? I know it's annoying to hear that. It's difficult to say it, but, but it's the gospel truth. Jesus didn't drop the hammer on Peter. He recognized just how broken Peter was in that moment. And if all we do is hoard grace for ourselves and never give it out, I, I, don't, I think that's just a facade of the relationship that Jesus wants us to have with other people. So I want to encourage you this holiday season, and it will happen. When there's times where you are in the right to drop the hammer, to say, I told you so, uh, sh show people some grace. And, and for just that brief moment, even if you're not a believer, even if you're not a Christ follower, and you still show them grace, for a glimpse, you, you, you are living out and realizing what God's heart is for you, even in that moment. So life-giving relationships aren't only based on grace, but they're also based on truth. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, speak truth in love. We will grow the church, RCC, the church in Ephesians, or Ephesus, and the, the, the global church. We will grow to become, in every aspect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. If a local church is completely passive-aggressive and never says what they mean to one another, out of, out of love, right? And so when you speak the truth in love, it means you, it means you, have to, you want the other person to win, Right? I know we're, we're in New England, we're super competitive out here, right? Like, I get it, but, but, but part of it is, I don't want to drop the hammer on you, even though I'm in the right, but I want you to win. I want you to see your, your blind spots here. I want to see your emotional uh, immaturity come to light in front of you and say, I want you to grow. I want to be for you. And if churches never speak to one another, when people cross their boundaries, we'll be like little children. We, we won't grow. Other, other parts of Ephesians will be like a ship at sea being tossed back and forth by the waves. It's healthy. It is good to communicate when someone has crossed a personal boundary that you have. And, and here's the deal. It's not easy, but when the people that I love and trust in my life, my wife, uh, my, my best friend Cody, other people in my life, when they tell me, hey, hey Ben, you were, you, 
you, you cross the line here. It hurts, but I know that they are for my good. And if following Jesus is all about what makes me feel good, I, I don't know. I think I'm going to be pretty naive in my Christian walk. I think I'm going to be pretty immature in my Christian walk. We need people that are willing to speak grace and truth in love, knowing that when we speak this, we want the other person to win. We want the other person uh, to be better. Because if we don't, <laughs> we'll have a bunch of life-stealing relationships. And life-stealing relationships take responsibility for the other person. They excuse repeated patterns of unhealthy behavior. Uh, codependent relationships that feed on ongoing cycle of unacceptable behavior, which God never intended for you to be responsible. Healthy relationships are based on grace, they're based on truth, and they're also based on boundaries. In Galatians 6, 2, Paul says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If, wow, you obey the rules, that's interesting, it just hit me. You obey the law, you obey the rules when you actually love other people. That, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a shift. And I think a lot how a lot of Americans think about religion. If anyone thinks they are something when they're not, <laughs> they, deceive them, they deceive themselves. And we deceive ourselves all the time, I'm sure of it. Each one should test their own actions. Paul's saying, take personal inventory, right? Here's a question for you. Ask your spouse this week, what's it like to experience me? <laughs> what's it like to sit across from me? right? And, and, and spouse, right? Know that when you speak, you want your spouse to win. So be, be, be truthful, but also do it in love. Then he says, then take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. Each one should carry their own load. I, I've mentioned this before, but it's so critical in relationships. Burdens and loads are, are, are different. A burden is an excessive amount of life that is happening to you. And so, so often what we do in Christianity, in our walk as Americans, we, we think we need to put ourselves, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and figure life out on our own. Well, when you play to your strengths, what you're good at, your repeated patterns of behavior, healthy or otherwise, and you figure something out in your life, you get autonomy. You get to be the hero of your life. Everyone thinks you're amazing, right? Everyone gives you a standing ovation. But a burden is not meant to be figured out in autonomy. A burden is meant to be resolved in community. And when you play to your weaknesses, when you go to your small group and say, guys, gals, here's what's happening in my marriage. Here's what's happening with my kids. I, I need advice. I love them. I don't want to do 20 to life. How do I, how do I handle my daughter? How do, I, how do I handle my son? When you take your excessive burden and bring it to the church, and bring it to your small group, you let go of autonomy, and you experience community, because you're not playing to your strengths, you're playing to your weaknesses. And that's the blessing, hopefully, that's the blessing in disguise of what a burden is. There, not everything in your life is meant to be carried uh, on your own. But then he talks about a load, and in the Greek, a load is a cargo or daily labor. Uh, tomorrow morning, hopefully, we all wake up, 
and you have to go to your job, you have to love your family, you have to raise your kids, you have to pay your bills, you don't want me to do your job, uh, you don't want me to raise your kids, you don't want me to love your spouse, that would be kind of weird. Uh, we all have our own personal responsibilities. When wires get crossed is when we ask other people to be responsible for what only we can be responsible for. Does that make sense? In his book, Boundaries, Dr. Henry Cloud, Christian psychologist, anything that Cloud and Townsend write, I would recommend getting. He says, boundaries define us. They define what it is, what is me, and what is not me. A boundary shows me when I need someone else, where, sorry, where I end and someone else begins, leading me to a sense of ownership, knowing what I am to, uh, knowing, um, knowing what I am to own and taking responsibility for what gives me freedom. Taking responsibility for my life opens up many different options. Boundaries help us keep the good in and leave the bad out. Setting boundaries inevitably involves taking responsibility for your choices. You are the one who makes them. You are the one who must live with their consequences. And you are the one who may be keeping yourself from making the choices you could be happy with. We must own our own thoughts and clarify distorted thinking. So as I end, l- let, me, let me give you uh, three easy next steps to put healthy boundaries in practice this holiday season. The first of all, first of all, let go. Uh, there's a big question mark around David Price's head. It hasn't been so hot during World Series, right? But he was in this one, thank God. Uh, what if in game five, in inning three, he walked out to the right fielder, right? Is that Mookie? I should probably know this before I say this story. He, he walks out to Mookie and says, hey, I'm done. You pitch, right? You would, you would lose your mind, right? You, you have a saying out here with the Patriots, right? Do your job. Some of us need to let go of being responsible for what other people need to be responsible for. Secondly, we need to speak up. Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. If I'm hurting you, if I'm offending you, and I don't know it, you're doing a disservice to me if you do not set up a time to have a conversation with me. And it's for my good that I sit across from you and hear where, where my immaturity is or where I cross the boundary. The third thing that we can do so we can... We can let go, we can speak up, and then we need to follow through. Proverbs 19, 19 says, A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. Rescue them, and you will have to do it again. It's important that we uh, let go of what is not our responsibilities, that we speak up and communicate in a loving, healthy way, but also that we circle back and follow through with folks. I want to close uh, the way I began. In Proverbs 24, 3-4, God's word says, Wisdom, by wisdom, a house is built. Through understanding, it's established. Uh, through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. I, my prayer is, as you establish healthy boundaries, that that verse could be said of your family. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate a communion together as a church family. It's an opportunity to reflect on the sacrifice that Christ made for us, died the death that we should have died, uh, and rose again on the third day. There's a beautiful verse that really captures what we've been talking about. In 1 Corinthians 10, 17, Paul says, since there is one bread, one body, Jesus, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What brings us together, we're all different, 
uh, people in this room, but the one thing that brings us together, that makes us family, that gives us the head of the house, Jesus, is Jesus' sacrifice for us. And we get to share that meal together and be reminded of the grace that he gave us that we might extend to other people. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, a new series, a new month, a new season, uh, new friends that have been visiting our church lately. Uh, Lord, I pray for my friends here that they would um, have conversations about what does it look like to set healthy boundaries. Uh, may, may this holiday season be, be a great one. And everyone's got that, that one family member. I, I, I get it. And we say it jokingly, but, but also there's a real sense that uh, if we don't have healthy boundaries, this holiday season uh, may, not, may not go so well for us. And so I pray that we step into the fact that we have your spirit, we should fear no man, and that we can have the mind of Christ uh, should we step into that and follow you. Thank you for your son and for the sacrifice he made for us as we celebrate now in this meal called communion. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.